Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Well, I hope you guys are ready to go. I've been waiting here for 15 minutes for you guys to figure everything out. Hi again, everybody. It's Jungle Jim Jerome coming out with another episode of Inside Curling. It's always a little risky when they tell me, Kevin and Warren, too. Jim, do you mind just hitting a few buttons on your laptop? <laughs> uh, not a good idea. Not a good idea. Welcome to Inside Curling as we wind down our season. Joining us, as always, is our Word Curling Hall of Famers, Kevin Martin, 2010 Olympic gold medalist. And Warren Hansen, the 1908 Northern Alberta uh, B Division semifinal. Okay. <laughs> really, Jim? He didn't invent the corn broom. He went way before that. He invented wood, okay, for the handles of the corn broom. Uh, we got sponsors, baby. Uh, I want to fully recognize Sports Interaction, who brings you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost, the sponsor of Mailbag. Hot Rock Topics is brought to you by Coyote Tractor. And in the house, we got a guest. We love our guest is brought to you by Goldline and Hearing Life, who sponsors What Are You Hearing? And all those categories are filled today. Here's what's on. Joining us today in the house will be Patrick Prade, manager of the Vancouver Curling Club, who's going to provide us more insight on what's going on with curling clubs. It's a bit of a sticky topic. It's not always good, but we'll find out what Patrick is doing in Vancouver. One of our listeners provided us some feedback on our comments about the Pan Continental Cup. This is our mailbag. You'll be happy to know, Kev, this guy, in his words, vehemently thinks Warren is wrong. <laughs> I said, I might read this email every five minutes on this show. <laughs> uh, what's happening around the curling world? Sault Ste. Marie announced a huge thing, a uh, major event that's going to be held in October. Uh, but speaking of the Pan Continental Cup, it's going to be played at the same time. What are you doing, people? What are you doing? Uh, Hot Rock Topics came across an interesting item this week regarding what is involved when it comes to exercise and calories. I'm guessing you got to (laughs) exercise. That's what's involved. (laughs) But we're going to take a look at it. You'll be surprised uh, how much exercise you get when you curl. Uh, It's more than you think. What are you hearing? We found some interesting results of a survey conducted by USA Curling. Uh, It was almost a couple thousand people that they surveyed. Uh, Warren's going to give us an update on, about that and the results from it. Goldline brings you in the house. Uh, Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. Would you please welcome the manager of the Vancouver Curling Club, Patrick Prade. How are you, Patrick? Hey, Jim. How are you doing, buddy? Well, I got a question for you, Patrick. When are you going to go back and get the haircut finished? Okay, it looks like... It's, it looks like it's so good. Okay, what, what do you got going there? You look like the French cartoon character, Tain-Tain. Do you remember? Uh, when you're five, six at best, the extra height helps, right? A little stabilizing during the slide as well. Aerodynamic, you know? I love it. Yeah, I love it. You look like a shark, like you have a fin on top of your head. It's cool. Streamline. I kid, Patrick. I kid, man. Thanks a lot for joining us. First of all, how are things at the Vancouver Curling Club? What's going on? Bring us up to date. Uh, things are good. We're uh, we're facing all the problems I think most clubs would like. We're we're basically at occupancy. Like during the peak of the season, thirty five draws a week, ninety eight percent ice utilization. Uh, we're trying to figure out how to keep getting people into the sport when there's limited space. So we got uh, all the good problems. How many sheets do you have? Uh, eight sheeter. Eight sheeter. So what's your biggest problem? Boy, we're starting off negative, I guess, but... Well, the the biggest problem is where to put the new curlers. We started a new program, a tri-curling, like one hour, 15 bucks, book online. Right. uh, Last year during the Olympics and had almost 800 people through in in two months. Couldn't fit anymore. We were running out of coaches and ice times. Uh, This year we had about 1,100 people through. And then our five-week programs are pulling 250 people a year. So how we get those players integrated into leagues is... uh, is one of the big steps we're trying to keep sorted out. And how are you doing that? From our membership survey, speaking of surveys, uh, we have 450 results in. We're looking at 6.30 in the morning to have games before people go to work rather than going to the gym. I was surprised how many people are actually open to it. Right. Adding spring leagues as well. 
How many other options, um, Patrick, do people have in Vancouver to curl? How many clubs are there? Well, I mean, we've got one just south of us, Marple, Six Sheeter, mm-hmm. uh, that we're looking to do some partnering with to maybe have some of our overflow, uh, get people into the sport. Uh, the North Shore, unfortunately, doesn't have any clubs anymore. And the Lower Mainland's actually seen a large amount of ice go away over the past decade. I think Warren probably have a better number than me, but it's at least at least 20 sheets over the last 20 years. So it look it looks to me that a bunch of clubs closed too early or not a bunch but but that clubs closed too early that they they sort of reacted to a bit of dip in attendance and memberships and now there's a bigger need for more clubs. I think a lot of clubs have fallen into a trap of not being sustainable long term like we think nonprofit we're not supposed to make money well if you're not putting away 30, 40, 60,000 a year, you're not going to be able to replace your plant or your roof uh, eventually. Mm-hmm. And that that type of big picture thinking, like we've had really good leadership at VCC. Mm-hmm. The club was in a building that was basically with a roof ready to fall down it, on it, uh, a river running under it, a ball of ice that was heaving that I think took like two years to melt after they tore the building down. Mm-hmm. But if it wasn't for the Olympics... Uh, alone from from Van City, we wouldn't be open at this point. Right. And the the leaders of our club they put together a great sustainability program that we have to put away the amortization depreciation of our assets every year to save for the long term. Yeah, it's a tough business. A guy who's been around a million curling clubs is Kevin Martin. So we'll get him to jump in here. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks Patrick for coming on. I really appreciate it, and I'm really happy to hear. Things are going so well for your club. We, we did see some numbers from you as far as the, the amount of revenue coming in from various ways. And that interests me a lot as far as, because I talk a lot on this podcast, I'm not sure if you tune in once in a while, but um, with membership, which is great, but then also having lots of events and fun things and different things so that maybe the uh, out of the 100% of revenue, you can knock down the membership portion, be maybe a little bit less. You know, a lot of clubs probably want to go after 80, 90% of their total revenue straight off membership. And, and I guess, how do you do it when you've got 98% sheet occupancy, which is amazing? Actually, the next study I'm running right now is per percentage, depending on the usage type, how that contributes and reflects in revenue. In kind of broad strokes, like rentals are our corporate, school groups. Uh, birthday parties, you name it. It's only using 11% of our ice each year, but it's 30% of our gross revenue. Wow, big. Right? It really picks up the ball. Our club and member-run leagues and programs are about four or 500,000. Rentals are about 300,000. And then the bar and the pro shop pick up the difference. And grants. Uh, so 11% of the overall usage is 30% of your revenue. And then 40, I'm, I'm guessing, 40, 50% of your membership rental revenue, that's 40% of your of your ICE or 50% of your ICE usage is only covering 40%. Yeah, 56% of our ICE use is right around 40% of our revenue. Isn't that amazing? So how do you, I guess my next obvious question would be, would you be looking at dropping your membership total down to maybe instead of 56%, 30% and bringing your your rentals up to 22, 23, 24%. And all of a sudden your revenues would increase by, I don't know, 10 to 15%. By a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, just simple math in my brain. Like, I think that's the balancing act we're really looking at right now is where do we need to cap our league programming at? And it's probably around 60%. Our Saturdays, we're actually reducing our five-week learn-to-curl options this coming season uh, to guarantee some spots for rentals to maintain that revenue stream. But we don't want to be caught in a spot where we don't have a pipeline anymore. So we make sure we have enough ice dedicated to discovering curling, to learning curling, and then to play curling, right? And that discover, it's the tri-curl and it's the rentals. That's where people get their first taste. Then you get them into a five-week program and then into leagues. So you mentioned a five-week program. What's that look like? Maybe it's common you know, for you, but I, I don't think a lot of clubs do that. No. Uh, so our five-week learn-to-curl is um, it's usually about 150 bucks, 30 bucks a week. Uh, the first session, you get quite a bit of learning with a coach, and then you play games with other new teams. 
the second through fifth week, it's only like 20, 30 minutes, like on learning how to hit or sweeping communication. Like you pick kind of a different focal point or different feature of the sport, line of delivery uh, each week. And then, yeah, they, they get out there, they play games with new curlers and uh, we make sure to have lots of intakes, which has really been key. We don't just have the start of the season, get in now or tough luck. We make sure every five weeks we've got a cycle of novice leagues, learn to curls, that you can go from one step to the next without being kind of left out in the cold. And how about uh, different positions, the newbies? Are you sw- you're making them switch every once in a while or something? Most will rotate for new teams, and we encourage it. Some have one person who's that natural leader that ends up skipping their group of friends, and we don't say that you can't, but it is good to get them to have the full experience. Back to the intakes, uh, the first time I ever went curling was a burger and beer 10 years ago out here in North Delta where I lived, and I loved it. I mean, I already knew how to drink beer, so I was halfway to curling to start. <laughs> but I, I go to the manager, I'm like, all right, Laverne, sign me up, I love it, when do I start? And she looks at me, she says, well, the ice melts tomorrow, we're back in September. <laughs> right. Right. Good timing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was back in September. Right. Well, no, but uh, you you mentioned something, and I'll let Warren here in a sec. You and I could talk for hours. You mentioned a spring league, which interests me. Yeah, so it was just kind of a off-the-cuff experiment this year. We had a couple little blocks where we were able to offer four sheets for eight weeks' worth of games condensed over a five-week period. And we put up one Facebook post, and it was sold out in two days, four sheets across, and people were saying, well, we didn't know, we couldn't get in or this coming season. We're going to be putting on a much bigger, more robust spring league running from kind of mid-March to end of April to see how much demand there is for an extended curling season. Huh. That's uh, excellent. Hey, Warren, go ahead. Great. Well, thanks, Patrick, for joining us. A few things I want to touch on. The first one is you have a, a lot of ideas about how curling clubs end up in decline and how do they get out of it. Uh, give us your rundown of how they get there and then how might they find their way out? Well, I mean, the life cycle of a nonprofit, you go from a startup, which we saw about 50 years ago, a lot of clubs being built. You start up, you get into a real good growth phase and the danger is when you hit maturity. And that's what we're really trying to avoid at VCC. Maturity is, and and Kevin, you described this, uh, the club's full and there's no room for anyone new. Kids can't get out and play unless their dad's the president or something along those lines but clubs get full and we basically missed a generation of curlers because we didn't have room for them and didn't need to attract them we get into a state of decline as a result and decline's not so bad nobody likes playing at nine o'clock at night or second draws and when there's less and less of those it's actually kind of attractive until money becomes a problem and clubs are faced with a real kind of key point. They either turn around and get back into a growth state, which involves a lot of change and a lot of discomfort because who wants to go back to second draws? Who wants to have to do all that work and and generate all these new people who don't know the etiquette? They celebrate and are obnoxious and all these things that, you know, the established (laughs) curlers, the established curlers don't want. And unfortunately, often clubs wait too long to the point where, they reach terminal. They no longer have the capital, the resources, or the energy to go into turnaround. Yeah, you know, um, like like golf club. We always compare curling to golf clubs because they're very close. It sounds to me, Patrick, there's only so much you can do, and that maybe you guys are trying to do too much. Like, you know, the golf club I joined, there was 450 members. It was capped, so you were guaranteed tee times. Uh, it's expensive. It was. It's kind of a luxury item to play there. But it's it's sold out. They're they're not worried about bringing in new members all the time. Are you guys at a stage where maybe you should be charging more money? What should dictate what you charge for for your rates is what is sustainable, right? One of the benefits to being full is we have those added revenue streams, so we don't have to charge an excessive rate. But for a lot of clubs, there may be a need for increased rates if you're not able to save up for your roof in ten years. Golf clubs charge a good rate, a good membership. Curling is overall definitely much too cheap. Too cheap. Yeah. Unsustainably. All the issues with uh, curling clubs in this country, there seems to be a never-ending discussion and who's responsible for making sure the clubs are sustainable. 
Is it the clubs themselves? Is it the provincial associations? Is it Curling Canada? Who needs to take the lead to say, here's what we've got to do and here's how we have to move forward? I, is there enough dialogue between all these groups and who really should be responsible in your mind for the club's success and continuation? And I'd say in BC, we're seeing some definite improvements. Kim Dennis at Curl BC is phenomenal, like advocate for clubs and facilities. She's really got that focus. I think a lot of it does go back to the clubs. In, in the end, that's your business, it's your community organization, and you need to look out for its long-term health. I'd love to see the provincial bodies doing some more lobbying. Heather kind of said, Curling doesn't do a great job of showcasing our value for both health and wellness in our community, that lobbying, that kind of getting that information out there to key stakeholders and municipalities, that's a place that the provincial bodies should really be driving, making sure we're much more visible in the positive impacts that we have. Yeah, I know Curling Canada, the, the member associations came, seem to want to throw it back to Curling Canada all the time. And from my point of view, I don't really believe it is their responsibility. They should maybe be involved in the coordinating factor, but I look at it more being the responsibilities of the member associations. Curling Canada, however, is running a series of seminars across the country uh, this spring under the title of Business of Curling. You're going to go to one this weekend in Chilliwack. The agenda that they have, do you feel that they're covering what they need to do? Is are these seminars the right thing to do or should something different to be done? I often look upon the fact that do the right people attend these sessions and is there enough uh, exchange of ideas are, are the things I wonder at times. What do you think? I went to one my first year in Kelowna when I started managing curling clubs, uh, and I found the information to be very valuable from somebody quite new to the industry. This year's set of panelists, I'm actually very much looking forward to Chilliwack. I was a speaker in the one in uh, Alberta, actually. I think they're on the right track, and it's good to see Curling Canada's involvement and, and taking some interest in the grassroots growth because they're partnering with the provincial bodies in this uh this year's business of curling. So uh, I'll have to get back to you in a week, but uh, with the current set of panelists and the agenda, I'm optimistic there'll be some good ideas shared. And uh, I just really hope people open their eyes to the fact that not-for-profit doesn't mean you can't make money. You you need to make enough money to keep that club and that community anchor uh, alive and healthy for the long term. It's, it sounds to me, Patrick, like you're all business. Uh, and I mean that in the sense of we've had other curling club managers on before, and they, they I don't know how to put it differently, but they talk in sort of general terms about how it's going at their club and all that stuff. But, but it sounds to me like you're, you're very analytical and you, you say, show me the numbers and I will go from there because you've quoted a lot of percentages and that bodes well for you being the manager at that club. I, I love it. I mean, I started with a small club in North Delta where I knew every one of the three, 400 curlers and eventually 600 curlers after a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Vancouver's a different beast. It's a big business. And I don't know if I'll get everyone's names ever at the, <laughs> at the size and scope of it. It's definitely a different feel. But I, I love data. I love numbers. Right. Uh, one of my favorite things is the membership survey. Right. I, I read through literally every single comment because that's how I understand where there's room for improvement and increased satisfaction for our membership. Good for you. Good for you. Well done. Do you get some time off now, the summer? Or what, what? The last club manager we had on was gardening and cutting grass <laughs> around the club. De definitely some gardening. Got the oh, barbecue okay. fired up, so that's good. Um, yeah, usually in the summer, some time off, but this summer there's a few few big projects on the go. So uh, I don't know if I'll get as much rest as, I, as I'd usually like to, but uh, busy is good. Good for you. Well done. Congratulations on running such a successful club. And uh, we'll talk to you somewhere down the road. Thanks. It was great uh, chatting with you guys. Hey, thanks a lot, Patrick. Patrick Prade has been our guest, joining us from the Vancouver Curling Club. Great to have him on. There's always like a different angle, man, that all these club managers have with how to run it. Huh? Yeah, this is yeah. Patrick's analytical. No question about that. I really appreciate that. It's a, the numbers and they, they make sense. And then you look at them at the end of the year and you go, oh, well, I wonder, do we need to tweak one one way or another? Right. What's our goal going right. to be for the next year? I love that thinking. Yeah, it's fantastic. What's your reaction, Warren, when you hear that interview? No, it's great. I think uh, Patrick's uh, a young guy who's got his head in the right place with all this stuff, and uh, we need more Patricks running curling clubs. <laughs> You're sucking up right now because you can still hear us. Yeah. <laughs>
Mailbag brought to you by Nestle Boost. We do it each and every show. We pile through, uh, I do. From morning till night, I pile through all the... Sorry, I made a mistake there. Warren does, yeah. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> Somebody does. <laughs> Somebody uh, does, yeah. But Warren always plucks a good one. Edward has some comments about our discussion last week regarding the Pan-Continental Cup. As I said, he's not, he's not pleased with what the old Hanson man well, has to say. He's not pleased, Jim. He's just offering another opinion. Why don't we let the listener be the judge, Warren, okay? Let's let the listener be the judge. Hi, Warren. I think you're dead ass wrong. No, I didn't. <laughs> hey, Jim, Warren, and Kevin. I'm a very big fan of your podcast. I listen to every episode and love your insight into the world of curling. The one thing I took exception to is Warren calling the Pan-Continental Cup a non-event. Sure. Right now, you can tell me four of the five teams that can qualify for the Worlds this year. But that will not be true forever. One day, the U.S., Japan, uh, Korea, and even Canada may not make the top five. It is possible. I vehemently disagree with the fact that the world should have an A, B, C, and D division because that would just entrench the top teams forever. On the European side, Sweden, Switzerland, Norway, etc., have to earn their spot in the world every single year at the European Curling Championship. Why should the rest of the world be any different? They, too, should have to earn their spot Long gone are the days, the automatic bursts for the U.S. And, and Canada. They are great curling countries, but even they should have to earn their keep at a regional curling championship. One thing I would like to see is the runner-up of the previous Scotties and Briars go to the Pan-Continental champion, Curling Championships instead of the winner. As the winner won the rights to go to the world, the runner-up could have this as a chance to wear the Maple Leaf. Can't wait for the next week's show. Best regards, Edward Giordano. P.S., as a curling fan under 35, I prefer 10 ends to 8 because it gives more time for a comeback. <laughs> oh, that's true. Let's go for 14. <laughs> yeah, if you're not very good, yeah, can we go? There's, there's no mercy rule. Nothing more <laughs> deflating as a spectator than a team scoring five in the first end uh, with effectively no time to close that gap. Uh, okay, Warren. He wasn't as, yeah, he wasn't as harmful as I thought you, Warren, <laughs> but that was all your take last week about what he's Speaking well, about. let's talk about that. Thanks for the email, Edward. And uh, when we talk about divisions, well, the European Championship right now does have three divisions. There's 10 countries in each one, A, B, C. Uh, and of course, the Pan-Continental has now got two divisions, an A and B division. And so it's not a matter of earning your, your position, in my opinion. If you look at the European Championships in that uh, A division, there's 10 countries. Well, seven of them are going to qualify for the world championship. So the top seven, and depending upon the situation with the host, it could be eight countries of the European championship are going to qualify. So I can assure you right now that before they start that championship, that Scotland, Sweden, and Switzerland are, are going to be in the worlds without question, and probably a couple more without having to go too deep. So they're not really earning their spot. They've earned their spot by their reputation and, and their I suppose, their record over the years that they're in that top 10. And the way it should work and the way most uh, sports do is with the three divisions, and maybe there should be four, let's go to the A division. Each year, the two bottom teams drop into B and the top two teams in B move their way up. And so that's how you work your way to the top. You start by playing against people that are your own caliber. And as you get better with that group and you can beat everybody in that group, you move to the next one. And I don't understand or never will gather the fact that you get better by playing the best teams when you're far from being the best and they get your butt handed to you on a platter every time. That is probably not how you're going to get better. So I, I think, amongst other things, the current system doesn't allow for people to move up the ladder as they probably should. So that was my point. And the fact is, I don't believe they are having to earn their, their right to play every year. They're already earned it by being there in the top 10. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Uh, the 10 and one, well, we've been through that so many times, and it's, right. it's, it's, it's a matter of opinion, but uh, as everybody knows, we, we support the 8 end position. Anyway, Kevin, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I was just thinking back, geez, I'd like to say it was the 2004 National. We were playing Jeff Stoughton in the final, and uh, Stoughton got five, funny enough to say five. He got five mm -hmm. on us in the first end, and we were one up after seven. So, and now Jeff Stoughton's... Well, going to be, yeah, a Hall of Famer, one of the best ever. Um, but yeah, you can, you can come back. Yeah, as far as 10 and 8, I think 8's 
no question it'll be the way it is at some point in time, just simply because of the amount of time, not so much the amount of time it takes to come back, but the amount of time it takes on television and on uh, streaming to have the game completed. So that's why I think it'll probably be eight ends. As far as worlds go, um, I do like the idea of an ABC, maybe D, um, and moving teams. Maybe it's two, maybe it's three. You can move whatever you want up to the up and back and uh, making people keep their A card or keep their B or their C or wherever they fit in. It puts a little bit of pressure on them, actually, especially if you move two or three teams out of A every year. No choice. They're, they're down into B. So it really forces the issue the, to keep those teams trying hard, working hard, because people are going to move into B, and then they got to work their way back up again. And there's all those teams coming up, like Turkey right now, that are really getting good. And watch out, they're going to be right near the top here, just like Italy is. So there has been some movement lately um, amongst the top teams. Italy's probably the best example, but there's always other examples of teams that are countries, shouldn't say teams, but countries that have really, really improved. It's an exciting time right now. I really enjoy watching some of the newish nations climbing that mountain to the top. It's really fun. Yeah, it's just a, slow, it's just a slower learning curve, it seems, in curling then. You know, golf has it, right? You can go play against Tiger, but if you don't place in the top 100, you're down to the Corn Ferry Tour. And I believe watching the B competition where the teams are all equal has some entertainment value in it where you're seeing the fact that everybody there does have a chance of winning that particular division versus being into a division. And we can go into the Briar and Scotties, a good example of that, where you've got a bunch of teams there with no chance, which, which mm-hmm. makes no sense. Right. Where I do disagree with you, Warren, I, I think I heard you say that playing against better teams doesn't make you better. I di- I, is that what you said? I disagree with that, if you did. I, I should. That's a difficult one. I, I guess to go out and play teams that you're absolutely uh, outclassed uh, repeatedly isn't going to help you any. I mean, to play a top-end team at some point in time is going to help you get better. You're going to learn from them. But to have a steady diet of where you're, you're not winning at all mm-hmm. uh, isn't going to make you better. All right. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jim, we'll let uh, your prerogative. You. <laughs> <laughs> Edward, thank you very much for your email, insidecurling at gmail.com. Uh, we've got a few few shows left for the year. Why don't you drop us a line and maybe your email will get read. What's happening around the curling world brought to you by Sports Interaction. You want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction. Get in on the action and make a play at Sports Interaction. You've got to be 19 years of age or older. Uh, and please play responsibly. My part of the world, Sault Ste. Marie, just outside of Sudbury, announced that an $80,000 purse will be offered in a men's event being held at the end of October. It'll feature 24 men's teams playing a triple knockout. The teams already confirmed. Bruce Mowat, Joel Retarnes, Scotland, Italy, Canada. Two from Canada, Dunstone and Cooey. Ross White from Scotland, Reed Carruthers. Kev, what are your thoughts on this event being uh, played at the same time this is a huge tilt. <laughs> it's being played at the same time as the Pan Continental Cup. Uh, Canada's being represented by Brad Gushu. There he is. I'll bet on him this time. But he's at the Pan Continental Cup. Guess that uh, means Brad, the Briar Championship and the World Championship finalists probably won't be there. Yeah, no, Brad will be busy at the Pan Continental. But but only Brad from Canada, right? You've got all these other teams that can come and, and so on. And there's only maximum one team from each country that can be at the Pan Continental. So there's mm-hmm. certainly tons of teams to fill the, uh, the 24 teams at, uh, in Sault Ste. Marie. And congratulations, first of all, to Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, the Harnons have a lot to do with that event. And uh, right. so good on them. I don't, think it, I don't think it's a bad thing to have it run at the same time as the Pan Continental. Um, un- you know, unfortunately, it'd be great to have Brad Guju in, in the Sioux, obviously playing at that event. But he's busy playing another event. But as the as the calendar you know shrinks because all these events are, are uh, there's so many new events, um, there mm-hmm. there is going to have to be a little bit of uh, overlapping. In this case, I don't think it's going to hurt Sault Ste. Marie to have you know Brad. They'll be cheering for him, uh, hoping to have him win the uh, Pan Continental. But in the meantime, tons of really good teams that can be battling it out in the Sioux. Right, right. Well, you heard a few of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren, thoughts, my friend. I know this whole scheduling thing is is a difficult one, and it's being coordinated, I guess, as best it can at the moment. But uh, it's going to have to involve moving forward the World Federation, 
Curling Canada, probably even USA Curling, the Grand Slam, and anybody involved with potentially uh, scheduling an event to be able to get together probably six months ahead of the next season and at least six months, maybe 12 months, and try to determine a schedule that uh, everybody can at least live with. I mean, this is a tough one from a Gushu point of view. When, When you're running an event of that nature, I'm sure... And I can go back to my days. If you were the Breyer champion, everybody wanted you to play in their event. And uh, he's a repeat Breyer champion. So to not have him there uh, does hurt them, I think, to some degree. And at the same time, he's got the Pan Continental. There's money in Sault Ste. Marie. There isn't any at the Pan Continental. So no kidding. Again, things that uh, are confusing right now, but in the future, hopefully, are going to get better. Well, that's a credit to Brad. You know, whether he had a choice or not, where he's going, where there is no money. You know, don't don't forget, he, he was the one who said the funding should be given to lesser teams and not to the high-performance teams. So, good for him. Maybe the suggestion that was given to us in the in the email is maybe not a bad one. Maybe the second-place team from the Briar should represent Canada at that Pan-Continental Championship. Maybe not a bad idea. That's actually not a bad idea. I, I, I thought, I'd never thought of that before, but that sounded like an interesting idea. Yeah, no, it is good. It's a good one. Yeah. Excellent. Is there any TV involved in these, Warren? I'm, I'm assuming Sue is not a televised event. It'll be streamed, I'm sure. And the one in Kelowna will be uh, will be streamed as well. Whether TSN's involved with maybe the finals of that, I don't know. But the fact it's in a curling club, I don't think they'll be doing daily coverage. They're just too difficult to do. Is this kind of political suicide that they're not having women there? That it's only a men's event? No, there's... Uh, there's lots of events out there that are strictly for men and strictly for women. It's not not unusual. Yeah, that's pretty normal, Jim. Actually, in curling, separate men's and women's, and well, just simply because of the amount of ice, you, like to have say twenty four men and twenty four women in in one. Can't do it. Right? Well, you've got to start so early. You know what I mean. So that's why a lot of women's events, a lot of men's events are are run separately for that for that reason. It, it makes sense on the calendar. I disagree with you. <laughs> No, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Jim. There's no question that the players, the players, would would love to have the women and the men's events at the same time. It's great entertainment for the crowd. Sure. Issue is just logistics, like how many sheets of ice you need and how many days, and it's just tough. That's that's all. We must be right. getting near the end of the year, Kevin. Jim's disagreeing with us. Yes, <laughs> quite a lot. Yes, I'm finding I'm finding my groove. Okay, I'm finding my groove. British curling has announced its high performance teams for next season. Warren, give us a review of who the teams and curlers are. And what? how do they do it, Warren? What's the process they do or use to determine so early? Well, I guess first let's assume they've done things in the same manner they have in the past few years where they actually, I think, Kevin, they hold a uh, sort of like a selection camp for, for a couple of weeks, don't they, where they bring in all these top teams, players, and then from that they, uh, they determine who's going to be playing with whom. I'm assuming that's what they have done again. Greg Drummond is now the... Uh, the director of high performance for British Curling, and he, of course, replaced David Murdoch, who is now working for Canada. But coming out of their, their training camp and their announcement for their potential podium teams for this year, number one on the list of the men's side is Team Mowat, and we know who they are, Bruce Mowat, Grant Hardy, Bobby Lamy, and Hammy McMillan. Not far behind them, and uh, Team of the Future for Scotland is Team White, with Ross White, Robin Biden. Duncan Midfagin, and Ewan Kyle. That's on the men's side, two teams. On the women's side, a little more mix of things. Three teams actually named. Let's start with the, the leader from this past year, Team Morrison. That team actually won the bronze medal at the European Championships. But there's uh, some changes on the team. So playing third for Rebecca Morrison, it'll be Gina Aitken. Second, Sophie Sinclair. And it leads Sophie Jackson. Jen Dodds is also going to be part of this team. As you may remember, she was part of Muir, Muirhead's gold medal team at the last Olympics, but she's going to still focus on mixed doubles, but will also be part of the Morrison team. The other women's team, Team Henderson, and they've indicated the playing order has not been determined yet for sure with this team. But Faye Henderson is a 22 World Junior winning skip, so she's going to be skipping this foursome with Beth Farmer, Amy McDonald, Katie McMillan, and Haley Duff, who is also from Muirhead's gold medal team. And the other three people on this team, other than Henderson, actually played with Duff this past year. So a little different lineup there. And the third women's team, Team Monroe, Robin Monroe. And she was the vice skip with Henderson when they won the world 
juniors. Playing with her will be Lisa Davey, Holly Wilkie-Milne, and Laura Watt, who were also part of Team Henderson last year. So a little bit of a change around in women's curling. And those last two teams, Henderson and Monroe, are made up of probably pretty young players. Kevin, what's your take on all this? Yeah, well, obviously super strong on the men's side and uh, uh, more young, terrific players coming up through the pipeline. So they're in great shape for, oh boy, the next 20, 25 years, uh, Scotland's going to be strong on the men's side. The women's side, you know, anytime you've got uh, one of the best ever in Eve Muirhead retiring, that, those are big shoes to fill. And the women's side, they're going to be moving, changing, trying to find, you know, a combination that can, can you know, be as good as what uh, Eve was year after year after year. So that's going to be a little tougher in the, uh, for the women's curling in Scotland. But the men are, they're strong, really strong, and will be for a long time. Right. Uh, I guess I'll ask you both, uh, you know, we had Patrick on, prayed earlier, the, the manager of the Vancouver Curling Club. You know, it's it's been a long time now that there's a bunch of threatening top position teams from, from Europe and Scotland. What are their clubs like, Kevin, over there? Did, is, is it run basically the same here? Memberships? A non-for-profit? How, how does it work over there? Do you know? Well, I think uh, the clubs run now as far as non-profit you know, and, and the inside like that, I don't really know. But as far as the clubs go, I've certainly been in a lot of clubs and, uh, and membership and leagues run fairly similar to, to us as far as that right. goes. It's okay. Getting more and more people into the club, that's always the goal. Getting young people right. in, I don't think that's, that's different anywhere in the world, trying to get lots of curlers in at a young age and, you know, and get them better and better at curling and having fun. And that's kind of the answer. And talking to the uh, club, a lot of the, some of the clubs, not, uh, they're not quite so much on the food and beverage side. In the case of Green Acres, where uh, Richard Harding and, and uh, Rona Howie are, they, uh, they have a big food and beverage part there. But a lot of clubs don't worry so much about that. Unlike in Canada, that's a big part of the revenue stream in Canada as a food and beverage. Right. It's hard to believe that the Scots, Kevin, wouldn't be concerned about beverage. <laughs> <laughs> At every single club. Yeah, yeah exactly. Even, yeah, that's, that's how they pick which church to go to. Okay, they have pints? Great, we'll go. Okay, uh, Hot Rock Topics brought to you by Coyote Tractor. If you have work to do, Coyote has the tractors, UTVs, and ZTRs to do it. Coyote, we dig dirt. From time to time, we come across some interesting information, and the following is courtesy of bondspields.net. In an average curling game, a front-end curler walks approximately 4 kilometers. Sweepers, approximately 2 kilometers. Burn approximately 600 calories. At a national curling event, a front-end curler would walk 100 kilometers and sweep for 50 kilometers. Holy God. Curling has the longest playtime of any sport at the Olympic level, 35 hours of play. Did you lose weight, Kev, when you were curling? <laughs> the front-end guys, I was always just doing the yelling, hard, hard. Yeah, yeah. Good for the vocal cords, <laughs> I guess, but uh, yeah. Uh, it is a huge amount um, of exercise. I'll tell you what, as for, now, which year was that? I think it was before the 2002 Olympics. Um, so with, uh, Walchuk and Carter and, and Donnie B, I believe that's right. Um, they mm-hmm. had us all on heart, heart monitors on us. Oh yeah. Uh, for a game in the grand slam actually, um, underneath our uniforms. So they, you know, obviously people couldn't tell, but it was sure interesting after, uh, after a couple of games, looking at the spikes, the sweepers, when you go pillar to post in the heart rate, and then it mm-hmm. comes down because the guys are fit, comes right down again and, and spikes again because you're only a, a, not very long between throws, you know, maybe 45 seconds, you know, because it, it takes about 25 seconds for the draw to get to the other end. If the other right. team throws a draw, if they throw a hit and you've got to make that come around again and sweep hard twice, it can be less than that even. So there's sure. not a lot of recovery time. So, yeah, curling is really... Uh, a tough one, especially for the sweepers, the recovery. And, and obviously when you're talking about interval training, that's terrific for weight loss and, uh, and fitness. And that's exactly what curling is. It's interval training. Right. Warren, you were all about the fitness. You were the first guy to sort of do it back in the curling days when everyone thought, oh, you're curl, right? You're, you're doing nothing. Uh, what do you think, Warren? 
I'm not surprised. And yes, uh, one of the first projects I took on when I started doing work for Curling Canada back a, a long time ago, I was in my 20s, was the fact that at that point in time, in the major competitions in Canada and the world, you could not set foot on the ice prior to the first rock being delivered. There was no warm-up. Actually, hired a physiologist from the University of Alberta, Dr. Art Quinney, who did a extensive study for us, put together a very detailed paper that I actually pitched to first uh, then Canadian Curling Association, and then secondly to the World Federation to begin to incorporate some form of warm-up. And uh, from that basic start, it took five years before we were able to get it to the point where it is now where you could throw rocks on the same sheet you're playing on prior to the start of the game. Uh-huh. It started out, you could slide. Then you could, at one point in time, you could throw rocks, but you had to throw them on a sheet adjacent to you, not on the one you were playing on. And then finally, we got to the point that you could actually warm up on the sheet of ice that you were going to play on. And so it wasn't an easy sell. And I think I've probably mentioned this show before, when I did the presentation to the World Federation, there was this hand went up at the back of the room and had a question. And I knew who the hand was. It was the stately secretary of the Royal Caledonian Curling Club, Robin Welch. He stood up, he says, Sir, I think it's all a pile of rubbish. Curling is a manly game. I'll tell you. <laughs> no need for warm-up. Yeah, no, we, no need for warm-up. I'll tell you what, Warren, back in your day, for every 600 calories lost by a, by a lead or second or third, heck, and the wrench put it on. They probably picked them up where uh, they didn't seem to shed much weight during the curling season. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, good stuff. What are you hearing? Brought to you by Hearing Life. If vision places the world in front of us, hearing places us at its center. Hearing Life invites you to love your ears with a free hearing test, no referral needed. Visit hearinglife.ca. And uh, we had a young lady on last week uh, from Hearing Life. And if you think you have a bit of a hearing problem, then you probably do. That's what I gathered from it. And uh, did you hear what she said? I said, here's the two or three things that are happening with my hearing. She goes, Yes, you have absolute hearing loss. I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, anyway, I'm on my way in there to check, check it out. We, the only- we figured something was wrong, Jim. <laughs> we'll yeah. blame it on your hearing. <laughs> I thought you guys had hearing loss. It was just selective hearing loss when I was talking. It's unfair. On social media this past week, Warren, you found a summary of a survey conducted by USA Curling. Uh, involved almost 2,000 people of club members across the USA. What was it all about, Warren? Well, if we go back and take a look at some history from last fall, there's been a bit of a feud going on in the USA between the curling clubs and USA Curling with regard to the dues structure and what USA Curling should be doing and what the clubs should be expecting them to be doing, etc. And it resulted in a separation of a very large segment of USA Curling from USA Association and the Grand National Group. And so as a result of that, I believe they put out a survey to... I guess their entire membership, which 1,900 people answered with regard to the things they thought that was important for USA Curling to be doing. And I won't go through the whole thing except a couple of highlights. So the questions they asked, a level of importance, top being very important to bottom being not important at all. So it was the national championships, regional playdown support, web streaming, bond spiels, curling news, instructor certifications, official certifications, ice making, curling rock financing, dedicated ice financing. So I will indicate to you what were considered to be very important and the one that was considered to be least important. National championships, they thought from the USA Curling's point of view, were very important and one third of the people of the 1900 suggested that. What even was more surprising, they thought that the national body should be responsible for providing web streaming. Thought it was very important. Half of them voted in favor of that. And they didn't indicate web streaming of what, but I assume again to be of their national championships. Another interesting one, I thought this is again a problem in USA versus Canada is not the same. Curling Rock financing, they thought was a very important thing for the USCA to be involved in. Not important, I thought interesting, was dues being part of the membership structure of a club, which this has been another dispute going on down there, whether the club should be the ones submitting the dues on behalf of their members or if each member should register with USA independently. On the dues end of things, the curlers overall thought the dues should be tiered. Now, this is really interesting. They should be registered as an individual. 70% thought that. 
but they thought there should be probably three different tiers of member. A rec curler, which they thought would pay maybe $34.92, not sure where that number came from, a junior, $29.10, but the competitive players, $85.93. Now, all three- Per month? Per, per year, per year. This is to the National Association. Now, you consider in Canada right now, each uh, member of a club in Canada that belongs to Curling Canada pays $2 a year to Curling Canada. <laughs> and we're looking at here, they're looking at rec curlers paying $34.92, which this has been part of the dispute down there from the rec curlers' point of view. What am I getting for my $34.92 a year? The other thing was, how should they pay their dues? And this, again, has been part of the struggle. Direct to USA Curling, 27% thought that would be the way to go. Add it to my club dues, 57% thought that would be the way to go, and 15% said they don't care. So some uh, rather entertaining numbers, I think, out of USA Curling as to what their membership actually feels and thinks with regard to the job and responsibilities of the USA uh, Curling and the due structure. Uh, when, when it comes to the paying the dues, it's probably easiest to control by everybody if you pay the club. If you curl at a club, you have to pay that one-time fee of X amount, 34 bucks, And then you're paid up for the year. You're, you get the emails. You get the information to do with uh, the national championships and everything else that the USCA is doing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Trying to collect from each person individually, I guess that would give the USCA a much better... Uh, list of the people that curl in the country that would be advantageous rather than just a list of the clubs and the clubs have the email and contacts for all their members so it's two different ways of looking at collecting that information which is important information people that enjoy the sport that you enjoy um, so i think i think that part makes a lot of sense as far as the list of what's important definitely a national championship so you know who's wearing your jacket at the world championship or at the olympic games that's super important the other thing that I think is really, really important is training and bringing young people into the game. And how are we going to have those uh, training camps? Um, how are you going to know who are the top young prospects in the country? I didn't hear that as one of the options. And uh, I think that's a really important one to grow the sport is to know who, who are the up-and-comers and how do we get more and more of them? Where are we going to have training camps in, in the uh, U.S. over the next five years? Making sure that it's fair, that they're, they're around the right spots, Who's going to teach them? How are we going to do this? So I think the growth of the sport, the grass levels, uh, grassroots is really important. And that could be a USCA job or the individual states. But a lot of the states aren't quite as organized as what the provinces are here in Canada. So, But somebody has to concern themselves with the training of the young people. I, th I think that's really, really important. Yeah, was it, was it back in the day, Warren? I my, my dad was a big fan of curling and, and I would watch it with him. And he was encouraging me to, did they call it schoolboy curling or, or something like that? Yep, schoolboys. No, you're right, schoolboys. Well, I can give you the history of that whole thing in a nutshell here. So schoolboy curling was started back in 1948 by the then three-time Briar champion, Ken Watson. He was the godfather of schoolboy curling. And that uh, was taken over by Canadian Curling Association to some degree in 1952. And it continued to schoolboys curling until 1975. And at that point in time, there was a group called the Canadian High School Athletic Federation that decided any school sport that involved a national championship that the schools no longer would be involved with for two reasons. They were concerned with the liability and they had to take a teacher out of school for a week to go with the teams. So it wasn't just curling that got sort of punted out of the school system at that point in time. Many people have felt over the years that that has been one of their demises of, of junior curling was the fact that the schoolboys championship was taken out of the system back in 1975. And they often blamed the Canadian Curling Association for it, and it wasn't. It was the fact that the school said, we will no longer do it. And interesting enough, uh, junior women's curling didn't start until 1972, but back in 72. And it was quite a ways behind the boys' end of things. But there was never a, a school girls curling, per se. When they started in 1972, it was junior. It was never in the school system. That was all off the top of your head, by the way, exactly. folks. Okay, that was okay. That was unbelievable. Okay, that was. Yeah, you just bring something like that up, Jimmy, and Warren's got it. I take back all the shit I said about you, Warren. <laughs> uh, we got a we got a we got a bleep button. We'll figure that out. Uh, well, there's another show on the books. Here's something I'm really looking forward to, and I hope it takes off. 
uh, before we go, we've got a few more shows left. Uh, a couple of things we'd like to bring to everyone's attention. Uh, Inside Curling is currently considering taking the show on the road, uh, so to speak, in 23-24. We're looking at possibly taking a day-long presentation into a number of communities where the program would actually involve the recording of an Inside Curling podcast with your gang, whoever it might be. If you think your community might have an interest in this, please drop us a note. And don't forget, you're talking about one of the best curlers of all time. Still maybe the best. We're not going to let Brad get anywhere near that title, okay? You know, you guys are both in the World Curling Hall of Fame. So I've seen Kevin speak before. I've seen Kevin at these events. I've been around them. You certainly get more than you'll ever think you do, Kev, because you're wonderful at it. And we can put Warren to the test as well. Uh, so that'd be fun if we did that. Uh, next week will be, uh, I keep saying we got a few more shows. Well, we got one. Okay. We got uh, next week will be our final show of the season. The whole gang from Sportsnet, Kev, all the guys you broadcast with. And uh, we're going to kind of do a round table for our final show with uh, Joan McCusker, Mike Harris, and Rob Falls. Uh, we've had them all on individually before, and uh, that'll be great. We also want to thank uh, Rod Paulson, who's been with us all year, and he, and he be, will be right to the end. Thank you, Rod, for, uh, for all the work you've done on our Facebook page and our Facebook group. In-House Strategies is the name of Rod's company. So whatever you need, media-wise, social media-wise, uh, Rod's your guy. Uh, if you don't belong to Facebook, uh, why don't you join? Hey, have a look at it. It's very active. Also, a reminder, uh, send us an email, insidecurling at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and your email uh, can end up on the show, as they do each and every week. Thanks a lot to Sports Interaction this year. Coyote, Boost, Hearing Life, Goldline, uh, all you people for listening, uh, for making all this possible. Reminder, next week will be a special show with all the gang from Sportsnet, uh, including you, Kevin. And you, Warren. Oh, thanks. Are you coming, Jim? And I wouldn't freaking miss it for the world, okay? I wouldn't miss it for the world. Have a good week. God, we're already well into June. Hard to believe. We're all going on a summer holiday pretty soon. We'll talk to you next week, everybody. See you, Warren. See you, Kevin. Awesome. Thanks, thanks, Jimmy. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.